0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Tomorrow is Texas Independence Day. So we thought we'd have a little celebration. Those of you who are newcomers to Texas or... uh, are under a certain age, don't remember, but back in the good old days, when a lot of us were kids, March the 2nd was a holiday, and April 21st was a holiday, because we celebrated Texas Independence Day, and we'd fly the Texas flag from, or as some would just say, we'd fly the flag from now until April 21st in celebration of Texas independence. Now people want to celebrate lesser events and smaller people. But we've yielded to political correctness from all I guess those liberals that moved in from out of state. The reason we celebrate Texas Independence Day is because on March the second of eighteen thirty six a small group of men gathered together to approve a statement, which was really a foregone conclusion, on the independence of Texas. They met in a small cabin in Washington, which is now called Washington on the Brazos. Small cabin at that time had no windows and had no door, and a northern had blown through the night before, and temperature was about 33 degrees that morning when they got together, and it was cold and drizzly, and you know what that feels like in Texas out in the country. And they met together and they finalized the form of the Declaration of Independence that day and they approved it. But due to the fact that they only had a few men who could do the writing and the copying, it wasn't until actually the next day, March the 3rd, that they could sign it. And even then, not not all the signers were there. Seven of the men did not arrive until Sunday. So we could have a uh, uh, or till till uh, the 4th, rather. So there could be a two-day celebration for Texas independence. I thought I would read it to you. I doubt many of you have read this in a while. It was modeled, of course, after the Declaration of Independence that Jefferson had penned. It begins, When a government has ceased to protect the lives, liberty, and property of the people from whom its legitimate powers are derived, and for the advancement of whose happiness it was instituted, and so far from being a guarantee for the enjoyment of those inestimable and inalienable rights, becomes an instrument in the hands of evil rulers for their oppression. When the federal Republican constitution of their country, and they were referring to the Mexican Constitution of 1824, Santa Ana had used, basically uh, turned the government into a tyrannical form of government and rejected and overturned the Con- Mexican Constitution of 1824. And initially, the Texians, as they like to be called back then, were not trying to get independence from Mexico. They were simply trying to get them to go back to the Constitution of 1824, and they put off declaring independence for a long time because they were hoping that the Federalists in Mexico would join them and they would not have to uh, declare their independence. So they write, When the federal Republican Constitution of their country, which they have sworn to support, no longer has a substantial existence and the whole nature of their government has been forcibly changed without their consent from a restricted federative republic composed of sovereign states to a consolidated central military despotism in which every interest is disregarded but that of the army and the priesthood, both the eternal enemies of civil liberty, the ever-ready minions of power, and the usual instruments of tyrants." When, long after the spirit of the Constitution has departed, moderation is at length so far lost by those in power that even the semblance of freedom is removed, and the forms themselves of the Constitution discontinued. And so far from their petitions and remonstrances being regarded, the agents who bear them are thrown into dungeons, and mercenary armies sent forth to force a new government upon them at the point of a bayonet. When, in consequence of such acts of malfeasance and abdication on the part of the government, anarchy prevails, and civil society is dissolved into its original elements, in such a crisis, the first law of nature, the right of self-preservation, the inherent and inalienable rights of the people to appeal to first principles, and take their political affairs into their own hands, in extreme cases, enjoins it as a right towards themselves, and a sacred obligation to their posterity to abolish such government and create another in its stead, calculated to rescue them from impending dangers and to secure their future welfare and happiness. Nations as well as individuals are amenable for their acts to the public opinion of mankind. A statement of a part of our grievances is therefore submitted to an impartial world in justification of the hazardous but unavoidable step now taken." of severing our political connection with the Mexican people and assuming an independent attitude among the nations of the earth. The Mexican government, by its colonization laws, invited and induced the Anglo-American population of Texas to colonize its wilderness under the pledged faith of a written constitution, that they should continue to enjoy that constitutional liberty and republican government to which they had been habituated in the land of their birth, the United States of America." In this expectation, they have been cruelly disappointed, inasmuch as the Mexican nation has acquiesced in the late changes made in the government by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna, who having overturned the Constitution of his country, now offers us the cruel alternative, either to abandon our homes acquired by so many privations, or submit to the most intolerable of all tyranny, the combined despotism of the sword and the priesthood. It has sacrificed our welfare to the state of Coahuila, by which our interests have been continually depressed through a jealous and partial course of legislation, carried on at a far distant seat of government by a hostile majority in an unknown tongue, and this too, notwithstanding, we have petitioned in the humblest terms for the establishment of a separate state government and have in accordance with the provisions of the national constitution presented to the general congress a Republican Constitution which was, without just cause, contemptuously rejected. It incarcerated in a dungeon for a long time one of our citizens for no other cause but a zealous endeavor to procure the acceptance of our Constitution and the establishment of a state government. It has failed and refused to secure on a firm basis the right of trial by jury, that palladium of civil liberty, an only safe guarantee for the life, liberty, and property of the citizen notice that not life liberty and happiness this was the original phraseology in the U.S. declaration not happiness that was an editorial change made later on but originally it was life liberty and property it has failed to establish any public system of education although possessed of almost boundless resources the public domain And although it is an axiom in political science that unless a people are educated and enlightened, it is idle to expect the continuance of civil liberty. Isn't that a great statement? That unless the people are educated and enlightened, it is idle to expect the continuance of civil liberty or the capacity of self-government. It has suffered the military commandant stationed among us to exercise arbitrary acts of oppression and tyranny thus trampling upon the most sacred rights of the citizens and rendering the military superior to the civil power. It has dissolved by force of arms the State Congress of Coahuila and Texas and obliged our representatives to fly for their lives from the seat of government, thus depriving us of the fundamental political right of representation. It has demanded the surrender of a number of our citizens and ordered military detachments to seize and carry them into the interior for trial in contempt of the civil authorities, and in defiance of the laws and the Constitution. It has made piratic, uh, piratical attacks upon our commerce by commissioning foreign desperadoes and authorizing them to seize our vessels and convey the property of our citizens to far distant ports for confiscation. It denies us the right of worshiping the Almighty according to the dictates of our own conscience, "...by the support of a national religion calculated to promote the temporal interest of its human functionaries." How politically incorrect. "...rather than the glory of the true and living God. It has demanded us to deliver up our arms, which are essential to our defense, the rightful property of free men, and and formidable only to tyrannical governments." has invaded our country both by sea and by land with intent to lay waste our territory and drive us from our homes and has now a large mercenary army advancing to carry on against us a war of extermination. When they wrote this, it was not a good time in the history of the War of Texas Independence. Within a week, the Alamo would fall. After Following the fall of the Alamo, General Urea would head north with a with his troops developing a northern pincer movement, and another group would head south. By the end of March, there would be the massacre of Fannin and his troops at Goliad. But as they say, all's well that ends well. And it was only about six or seven weeks before Santa would I mean, Santa Anna would be completely defeated in a surprise attack by S- Sam Houston, one of the ten most Uh, significant battles in all of history settled in about 18 minutes. I think it was, what, 18 minutes and some seconds. Very fast battle and one of the most significant in all of military history. Furthermore, they wrote, It has, through its emissaries, incited the merciless savage with the tomahawk and scalping knife to massacre the inhabitants of our defenseless frontiers. It has been, during the whole time of our connection with it, the contemptible sport and victim of successive military revolutions, and hath continually exhibited every characteristic of a weak, corrupt, and tyrannical government. These and other grievances were patiently borne by the people of Texas until they reached that point at which forbearance ceases to be a virtue. We then took up arms in defense of the national constitution. We appealed to our Mexican brethren for assistance. Our appeal has been made in vain." Though months have elapsed, no sympathetic response has yet been heard from the interior. We are therefore forced to the melancholy conclusion that the Mexican people have acquiesced in the destruction of their liberty and the substitution, therefore, of a military government that they are unfit to be free and incapable of self-government. The necessity of self-preservation, therefore, now decrees our eternal political separation. And then they conclude by saying, We... Therefore, the delegates with plenary powers of the people of Texas, in solemn convention assembled, appealing to a candid world for the necessities of our condition, do hereby resolve and declare that our political connection with the Mexican nation has forever ended, and that the people of Texas do now constitute a free, sovereign, and independent republic, and are fully invested with all the rights and attributes which properly belong to independent nations, and conscious of the rectitude of our intentions, we fearlessly and confidently commit the issue to the decision of the supreme arbiter of the destinies of nations. It was that document that set Texas apart as an independent republic, and even though it was a couple of months before they were able to secure that on the field of battle at San Jacinto, they were able to secure that independence, and it created the myth and the reality of Texas and Texans. <clears throat> Texans today are a people on their own. Texas, somebody said, is like a state of mind, and it is, I think, very appropriate to say that. It was born of conflict, men who were willing to fight and die for liberty and for freedom, and a people who understood what that meant. These people who came to Texas as settlers in that time period, in the 1820s and 1830s, came from a migration that had begun about 75 years earlier from Scotland and Ireland to the east coast, the eastern seaboard of the United States, through a group of people generally referred to as the Scots-Irish. They brought with them a vibrant faith in God. They were heavily influenced in their theology by the Reformation, by John Knox, And although there were some that became Methodist and others that became Baptist, they were heavily influenced by a strong belief in God and a strong belief in a substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and the necessity of putting your faith in Christ for salvation. This was bred into these people and it was a vibrant part of the way they thought, unlike the way people think today. One of the men that came and they came for many different reasons and under many different circumstances, was a young man by the name of Mirabeau Bonaparte Lamar. Lamar became the second president of the Republic of Texas, but when he first came, he came because he was somewhat despondent over the death of his young wife, who he loved very deeply. His ancestors were Huguenots, French Calvinists who fled France because uh, they were being persecuted for their Protestant beliefs. They settled in Georgia. He was born in 1798 on a plantation uh, that was owned by his father, John, and his mother, Rebecca. He loved reading and writing, fencing. He loved history. He loved the Lord. In 1821, he met a young girl who later was the love of his life. She was uh, just about 12 years old or so at the time, 12 or 13, and and he met her some three years later, and yet it was even two years after that before they were married. She uh, contracted uh, tuberculosis, I believe, and she died as a result of that after giving birth to a daughter named Rebecca Ann. Shortly after that, because he was so despondent over her death, he decided to go to Texas. he came to Texas, he fought at the Battle of San Jacinto, and at the Battle of San Jacinto he was a true hero. He fought so vigorously that, and his deep belief in the independence of Texas was so profound that this was recognized, even though he was a young man, he was elevated very rapidly to the position of Secretary of War within ten days of the Battle of San Jacinto from that his position he developed uh, from that position he continued to rise he was vice president under general Sam Houston and then he was the republic's second president on march the 2nd of 1840 the anniversary the fourth anniversary of the declaration of independence of texas there was a celebration of several men in washington county celebrating the the birth of the republic and he wrote a poem he wrote Tremendous poetry as well as hymns. He wrote a poem called The Star and the Cup. I love the bright lone star that gems the banner of the brave. I love the light that guideth men to freedom or the grave. But, oh, there is a fairer star of pure and holy ray that lights to glory's higher crown and freedom's brighter day. It is the star before whose beams all earth should bow the knee, the star that rose o'er Bethlehem and set on Calvary. Let others round the festive board the maddening wine cup drain. Let others court its guilty joys and reap repentant pain. But, oh, there is a brighter cup, and be its rapture's mine, whose fragrance is the breath of life, whose spirit is divine. It is the cup that Jesus filled. He kissed its sacred brim and left the world to do the same in memory of him. In December of 1840, he was suffering from poor health and he had to retire temporarily from the presidency. And during that time, he wrote another poem that became a hymn. It's called The Soldier of the Cross, and it was written to the pioneer preacher's of Texas I thought this would be good to read at the uh, pastor's conference he writes nay tell me not of dangers dire that lie in duty's path a warrior of the cross can feel no fear of human wrath Where'er the prince of darkness holds his earthly reign abhorred sword of the spirit thee I draw and battle for the Lord I go, I go to break the chains that bind the erring mind and give the freedom that I feel to all of humankind. But, oh, I wear no burnished steel and seek no gory field. My weapon is the word of God. His promise is my shield. And thus equipped, why need I fear? Though hosts around me rise, there is a power in gospel truth no heathen can despise. And he who boldly fights with that will through more perils wade than the vain warrior trusting to his bright Damascus blade. No blast by land or sea can shake the purpose of my soul. The tempest of a thousand winds may sweep from pole to pole, yet still serene and fixed in faith. All fear of death I scorn. I know it is my father's work. He's with me in the storm. Then let me go where duty calls, where gratitude demands, bearing the banner of the Lord to dark and distant lands. And if the high and holy cause require my early fall, a recreant he who would not die for him who died for all. Now, if you're interested in finding out more about Mirabeau Bonaparte Lamar, the man in the congregation to see is Tom Wright. Tom is the one who's written a lot about Lamar and has a nice, concise paper, so you need to talk to him about that. But we see that men like Lamar at the time of the founding of the United States of America and at the time of the Texas independence from Mexico were men who were occupied with Jesus Christ, men who were focused on eternal truth, men who understood where freedom derived that it came from a relationship ultimately with the Lord Jesus Christ and because we are free in Christ we should be free indeed that was that was understood now not everybody who was associated with the war for independence was necessarily a believer. Sam Houston became a believer later he married uh, I believe her name was Margaret and she led him to the Lord in later years there were others who were uh, believers at that time, and committed believers, and that influenced their thinking and influenced their drive for the independence of Texas. But what drove them and what should drive us is an understanding and appreciation for the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he is doing today. And that's the thrust of the writer of Hebrews as we come into Hebrews chapter 7. So let's bow our heads and have a few moments of silent prayer. And then we'll get ready to study the Word. Father, we do thank you for the freedom that we have. We thank you that we have political, civil liberties that enable us to possess our own copies of your Word, to study it, to think about it, to preach it, to declare it, to teach it, to study it, to differ, and to be unencumbered by the Uh, by by the tyranny of government or the tyranny of a state church. We have these freedoms because there have been men and women who have gone before us who have been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice that we might have these freedoms. They were secured on many different battlefields from uh, Valley Forge to the Alamo, San Jacinto to Gettysburg battlefields that occurred in the Atlantic and in the Pacific, battles that occurred in Europe, and Africa, battles that occurred in Asia. And it's because of these men and women who were willing to make this sacrifice, many of whom understood that it was no sacrifice at all, for if they lost their life, they would be simply transitioned from earth to heaven. And many... Many did it. Many of those who were influential did it because they understood a greater plan, a greater purpose, and they knew that freedom came only and ultimately from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word, may we not take these freedoms lightly. May we be reminded that that the freedom that we have just to sit here and study and read and to hold our own precious copy of the scriptures in our lap is a freedom that has been dearly won on the battlefield in many different generations. And we continue to pray for our nation that we might have these freedoms preserved, that we might go forward. And as we face so many conflicts today, enemies, religious and political, that would destroy this nation, we know that our only ultimate hope of security is in your grace. And so we pray that you would continue to make us free, to keep our freedom, to give us victory on the battlefield, both spiritual and uh, martial, that we might continue to go forward sending out missionaries around the world and sending uh, and supporting Israel and preparing pastors that they might go forth to teach and prepare your people, the priests, that you have saved the royal family of God destined to serve as royal priests with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 7. To understand what the writer of Hebrews is going to say here at the beginning, we need to go back just a couple of verses to pick up his flow of thought in Hebrews six nineteen and 20. This is the conclusion of that exhortation section that began back in chapter 5 goes through chapter 6, and he concludes by saying this hope, as we have it translated in the New King James, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if we look at this verse, I want to point out a couple of things. I didn't cover in quite as much detail as we were wrapping that up. As the verse begins, and it's a fair translation in the English, we have that word hope in italics. That means that it's not in the original. Actually, the original begins with a feminine form of the relative pronoun. Relative pronoun must agree with its antecedent in gender. Antecedent is the word to which it refers, so it doesn't begin this, it begins with the word which. And which, it being a feminine pronoun, feminine relative pronoun, must refer back to a feminine noun. Well, the last noun in verse 18 is the noun elpis, or hope, that is in the, that is a feminine gender noun. So that's the reference there. This is why it's legitimate for the translator to bring that over for, for sake of, of uh, clarity of reading, and but it should be translated. Which hope? That is this hope we just talked about. Which hope we have as believers, as an anchor of the soul. An anchor is that which gives stability. And certainty in the midst of storms. It is that which stabilizes us. It is that that future expectation, living in light of eternity, as we've studied. That as as we are as we make that future destiny so real to us that it stabilizes us in this present time. That's that sixth problem-solving device we talk about, that sixth stress buster, that personal sense of our eternal destiny, that that future is so certain that no matter what happens today, we can just relax and move right through it. It is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and the text says, which enters. Now, the, the verb there is ace ercomi, which means to go into or to enter, but it is a participial form and it is a, has a feminine ending, which means it's used as a, as a relative participle to refer back also to that hope. So it would be translated, and which hope enters the presence behind the veil. So what the writer is doing here is he is personifying hope as as if it's a person. It is our hope that goes forward into the veil, following, because that's the focus of the hope, following the one who has been our forerunner, our predecessor, the one who has blazed the trail and entered into the Holy of Holies, first of all, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer is saying our hope is focused on Jesus Christ and it goes before us and it gives us certainty and steadfastness in this life because it is focused on the forerunner, Jesus, who has become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This mention of the order of Melchizedek picks up the theme he began to introduce back in verse 10, talking about Jesus as having been perfected that he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this theme related to the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ doesn't just pop up here in the middle of the epistle. It, it's been introduced gradually, step by step by step, as you go through uh, Hebrews. Back in Hebrews two, seventeen. We have the mention, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that is the human race, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to god and If you remember when we studied hebrews two ten through seventeen the focus there was on the sanctification that had to occur in the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had to grow and mature, he had to go through suffering, he had to go through trials, he had to go through testing. Verse 10 said, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. That's a reference to his deity. In bringing many sons to glory, excuse me, that's in reference to the Father, it was fitting for him, the Father, For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or mature through suffering. Now the reason the Lord Jesus Christ had to go through that process is so that he would be qualified in his humanity. Because at the moment of the hypostatic union, at that moment of the incarnation, when the eternal deity of the second person of the Trinity took to itself the genuine humanity, that was to be the human part of the Lord Jesus Christ, that at that instant that that was joined together, it would never, ever separate. He would be in hypostatic union forever, the joining of of uh, of deity, a perfect deity of undiminished deity with true genuine humanity forever, a billion years from now. The second person of the Trinity is still going to be incarnate in a resurrection body forever and ever. And he is elevated at the ascension above the angels, above all creatures. He is seated at the right hand of the Father awaiting the distribution of the kingdom that we've studied in Daniel chapter 7. And as this position next to the Father, he is sitting on the Father's throne, Revelation chapter 3, and serving as a faithful high priest. So this is his role. He began that work when he made propitiation for the sins of the people on the cross. Then the next mention of this priesthood is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. There the writer of the Hebrews uh, of the epistle to the Hebrews, is reminding his readers as he begins the next section, he's picking up this theme of the high priest, and he's weaving that in as the foundation of what he's going to say from 4.14 to 5.10. He begins with the high priest, ends with Melchizedek, and breaks off. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, with our weaknesses. A double negative in the English cancels each other out. What he is saying is we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he went through all those same tests in his humanity. He suffered. Whatever those adversities are, the kinds of adversities and temptations, testing that we go through, he went through them as well. The only difference is he doesn't have that internal fallen nature that is giving him an attraction to the sin but he has to go through those same tests because he he's he's going to show that a man utilizing the power of God the word of God and the spirit of God can surmount the testing as Adam did not and so in his humanity he has to handle this so he is tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And so we can therefore, because He has done this, because of His victory on the cross, because of His ascension to the right hand of the Father, we can therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, what has happened here? Coming to the throne of grace is not something that could happen in the Old Testament, it is entry into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. That is exactly what is being uh, described under a different metaphor in 6.20, where the forerunner has entered for us, having become high priest. Our hope can go in there. Our confidence can go directly to the Father because of what he has done in his high priestly ministry. And he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, why does he have to explain this? He has to explain it because he's writing to a bunch of, of Levites, probably, Levitical priests who were serving or had been serving in the temple in Jerusalem and came to understand and accept that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament and they had put their faith alone in Christ alone and they were saved. But they, they, they're they having questions now about the validity of their salvation and the spiritual life apart from the ritual and the priesthood of the Old Testament. And they need to have that explained to them how Jesus Christ can be this high priest. And so the writer is going to explain that this priesthood comes from this unique priesthood of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. So we look at verse 1 of chapter 7. The writer says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem. See, the first thing we learn about him here is that he is, that Melchizedek was a king. This goes back to Genesis chapter 14. Let's just hold our place here and turn back with me to Genesis chapter 14. You might want to stick a bulletin or a piece of paper or whatever you have handy into Genesis 14. There's only Three verses that mention Melchizedek in Genesis. And then there's one other verse in Psalm 110.1. That's it. That's all we know about Melchizedek. But the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to take those four verses that we have from the Old Testament and build upon that an argument for the kind of priesthood that Jesus Christ has. Great lesson in how to do theology and exegesis there. Then we're told in verse eighteen. This is following Abraham's defeat of the four kings under the alliance with Keterleomer. Then Melchizedek, uh, uh, excuse me, on his way back from that victory, Abraham took a detour to Salem, which is another name for Jerusalem. There to make, bring a tribute of a ten percent of, of, of the spoils to the priest king of Salem. We read in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of El Elyon, God Most High. And he blessed him, he blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice the emphasis on creation. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands, and he, that is Abram, gave him a tithe of all. And then we're told that there was a little <clears throat> jealousy going on from the king of Solemn, uh, Sodom who wanted to uh, have some of the, that for himself. So this is our only reference, our only information other than Psalm 110.1 which references the Messiah that uh, the Messiah would be after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4 uh, actually. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, we're told, was priest of the Most High God. See, this comes directly out of uh, Genesis 14. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, that is Melchizedek from the Hebrew Melchi or Malach is king, So Melchi means my king, or it could be construct, the king of righteousness, my king of righteousness, or king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which Shalom is the Hebrew greeting, meaning peace. So Salem is a noun meaning peace. So he has two titles attributed to him that are similar and analogous to titles given to the Messiah, to Jesus, who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, as we see in um, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, corrected translation, Father of Eternity, meaning he's eternal, and Prince of Peace. So we see a parallel that is definitely drawn from the scriptures between this uh, Melchizedek the king of Salem and Jesus Christ the prince of peace. And then verse 3 tells us that he is that is Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy. That doesn't mean, as I pointed out last time, we'll go over this again, everybody always goes to this. It does not mean he didn't have parents. It doesn't mean that he's the pre-incarnate Christ. He just kind of popped up out of nowhere and disappeared. The writer is saying in in the scriptures, in the revelation of God, nothing is said about his parentage. Nothing is said about his lineage. Nothing is said about his genealogy because those factors weren't significant to his priesthood. In a Levitical priesthood, you had to be able to trace your lineage back all the way to Levi. There were those who came back from... Uh, the exile, who were Levites but could not document their lineage and they were not allowed to practice serving as priests in the temple. And that's the writer's point is that the Melchizedekian priesthood is not based on lineage, not based on relationship to parents, not based on genealogy or any of these factors and uh, we don't know... The, when he, when he was born we don't know when he died because that's not relevant and he goes on to say that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life in the revelation he's not saying that Melchizedek was eternal because he was not he was a man we'll look at some reasons why Melchizedek could not have been the pre-incarnate Christ uh, before we're done so we'll just begin with those first three verses and probably not get much further than that uh, this, this evening. So we need to find out who Melchizedek is. And there are six comparisons between Melchizedek and Jesus. And the point here is to show the superiority and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And of course, one of the things that made him unique was his resurrection that the tomb is empty now of course, I mentioned this last Sunday I'm sure some of you had seen some of these reports that there is going to be a special there's going to be a special movie documentary put out on the Discovery Channel and some of the other channels uh, broadcast this Sunday, having to do with the fact that uh, James Cromwell and uh, another uh, filmmaker Jacobavici uh, who's a Canadian that they claim that they have found the tomb of Jesus so let me give you uh, I have seven reasons why it's not, eight reasons why it's not the tomb of Jesus you need to be forearmed in detail when you watch this number one reason is because the Bible says that there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, either they're having a mass hallucination, which can't happen, or you have 500 liars who are in a conspiracy together, and that's not what happened. All you need is two witnesses to confirm anything legally, and there were f- over 500 witnesses at one time to the resurrected Christ. That's dot mentioning many of the other people to whom Christ appeared physically and bodily, after the after the resurrection, First Corinthians chapter fifteen verses four and five documents that that whole section in there documents the people the witnesses of the resurrection on list them. Second reason, because the apostle Paul, who hated all Christians with a vengeance, sought to murder all Christians. Saw the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and it he, it completely changed his life. He spent the rest of his life defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ and teaching the implications and the doctrines related to the fact that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah from the Old Testament and died on the cross for our sins. A third reason that we know that Jesus rose from the dead and that this ossuary is not what they claim it is, is that because the rest of the disciples changed from cowards hiding from the government and from the religious authorities to leaders who were willing to risk their lives for a risen, ascended Lord. And if you study the lives of the disciples, aside from the apostle John, and there is some tradition that he was martyred, but probably not. He probably was the only one who died of old age. Every one of those 11 disciples, except for John, gave his life for the gospel. Now, would they give their life for something that they knew was a fraud, that was false, and that was nothing more than something they they conspired to promote on the world? No, they wouldn't. One or two of them might, but not all of them would give their life in horrible, horrible ways in several cases because they knew that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. Fourth reason, because the resurrection of Christ fulfilled Old Testament prophecy that his body would not lie corrupt in the grave. It was foreshadowed and prefigured and prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be resurrected from the grave. Now those four have to do with the foundation, what the Bible teaches, and that's all we need to know. But what about what they say? Fifth reason. Names like Jesus, which in Aramaic is Yeshua, were common names. Names as common as James or Jim or William or Bill uh, that you have today. In first century Judea, there were numerous men named Jesus. In fact, the name Yeshua has been found on over 22 ossuaries to date. So just because you find the name Yeshua on an ossuary doesn't mean it's Jesus of Nazareth. Furthermore, the name of Joseph has been found on over 45 ossuaries from that time period. So just because you find there, in fact, the chances are that in any family, you're going to have uh, maybe several uh, Marys or Josephs or Judah was a, another name, that's the sixth point, the name Judas, because one of these uh, claims, one of these ossuaries has the name on Yeshua bar Yosef, and uh, the, then another one has the name Yehuda bar Yeshua, meaning Judah the son of Jesus. But see, Judah was the tribal name of one of uh, Isaac's, I mean Jacob's 12, 12 sons, Judah. And so, this, the tribal allotment of Judah was just to the south and bordered up against Jerusalem. In fact, Judah is the form of Judea. So, this what Judah would be a common name that you would find, uh, pe- for, for people in that particular area. So, not only was Yeshua and Joseph a common name, but also, uh, uh Ju- Judah was a common name. In fact, the other thing you need to know, is a number of, and I find I find this fascinating, the number of world-class biblical archaeologists, Jewish, non-Christian, Gentiles, as well as Christians, have come out and said that this is just a bogus claim, they're just trying to make money, and that, uh, in fact, several of them who have worked on this site—this isn't new. This this may be new to you, and first time I heard about it. But this has been known to these archaeologists who work in the field and who work in Israel for 20 years, and they they all dismiss it as meaningless and irrelevant, and they never attached any significance to it whatsoever. In fact, several of them have said, if you look at the inscription of the name on the ossuary that's supposed to be Jesus, it's not clear that it even is Yeshua. There is tremendous debate among them over over that. Uh, De- Devers, who's a retired, I don't have his first name, he, this was from an article that appeared in the Washington Post yesterday, a retired professor of archaeology at the University of Arizona who's worked for 50 years in biblical archaeology is not a Christian. His name is William G. Deaver. And he has been excavating in Israel for over 50 years. He says, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer. I don't have a dog in this fight. He says, I just think that it is a shame the way this story is being hyped and manipulated. He said that some of the inscriptions on these ossuaries are unclear. It's not easy to decipher them. There's debate over what they actually say, but that all of the names are extremely common, and you'll find them in many families. I know that in my family, it's very confusing around Thanksgiving or Christmas because there were three Bettys in the family. So, you know, it's not uncommon to keep running into certain names in certain generations. Uh, Amos Cloner is a Jewish archaeologist who was the original excavator of the tomb, and he, along with Joe Zias, the former curator of archaeology at the Israeli Antiquities uh, Authority, have both rejected these claims. Cloner told the Jerusalem Post that the documentary is just nonsense. Zias uh, sent an email to the Washington Post and said, quote, it's a hyped-up film which is intellectually and scientifically dishonest. Uh, Jody Magnus, an archaeologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, expressed her irritation about these claims at a news conference and and said, why are they releasing this to the public in a a film like this instead of the proper procedure of peer-reviewed findings to the scientific community? She said the filmmakers have, quote, set it up as if it's a legitimate academic debate when the vast majority of scholars who specialize in archaeology of this period have flatly rejected this. The seventh reason, part of what I've just quoted, is that even secular atheist scholars and archaeologists reject the claims that these uh, ossuaries have anything to do with the Jesus of the Bible. And then the eighth reason is that Only wealthy people, the wealthy elite, could afford to have a rock-hewn tomb. Remember, the tomb that Jesus was laid in was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, who was very wealthy. Only the wealthy could afford a rock-hewn tomb. If this is Jesus' family, his tomb would have been in Nazareth, which was the family home, or in Capernaum, which is where he lived during much of the time of his ministry, not in Jerusalem that was not his home area so it is uh, r- ridiculous to think that Jesus family would possess wealthy tombs in a wealthy that were in a wealthy area or an a- area where the wealthy uh, were buried in Jerusalem okay back to the superiority of Jesus and Melchizedek there are six comparisons made in this section between Melchizedek and Jesus. First of all, they are both king priests. They are both royal high priests. Melchizedek is referred to as a king priest, and that is the point related uh, to Jesus. They were king priests as opposed to the Levitical priests. Second, they, were, they, they both blessed Abraham. When Abraham returned from the victory, Melchizedek went out. He took bread and wine that's not done anything to do with communion. That was just a standard Middle Eastern meal. They, he went out to have fellowship, to have communion, uh, just to uh, have that time together with Abraham and to bless him, to commend him to God for his victory. God also The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ also had blessed Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Third, both of them had superior authority with their priesthood. Abraham, who was one of the wealthiest men of the ancient world, recognized the authority and superiority of the Gentile priest-king and brought him a tribute after uh, after his victory. Jesus Christ is seen here as having the superior priesthood because he, now listen to this, he is the prototype for the Melchizedekian priesthood. It's not the other way around. The word that is used here in the Greek is af, afamoyao, afa moya which means to be made like or to resemble. Look at verse 2. Or excuse me, I'm in verse Verse 3, the end of verse 3. Verse 3 reads, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. Who was made like the Son of God? Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. That's one of the reasons Melchizedek isn't the pre-incarnate Christ. He is said to have been made like or to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. So who's the prototype? prototypes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was just a finite representation that was designed historically and within the context of Revelation to portray and to symbolize certain aspects of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So both had a superior priesthood and authority. Fourth, both were... Independent high priests, by that I mean there was no tribal or genealogical connection. They were independent of any other structure. Both Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ are independent high priests. The Levitical priesthood was based on descent from the tribe of Levi, and the high priest had to be a descendant from Aaron, according to Numbers chapter 16. Fifth, both priesthoods were timeless. Timeless, they were not bound by time, whereas the Levitical priests served only from the time they were 25, and when they were 50, they had to step down according to Numbers 8, 24, and 25. So both the Melchizedekian priesthood and the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ are unlimited. They are not bound by any temporal, any time qualifications. And sixth, both priesthoods Serve Gentiles and Jews. They were universal priesthoods, whereas the Levitical priesthood was only directed to Jews. This is the point that the writer of Hebrews is making in these first three verses, is that there is a comparison between the uh, king-priest Melchizedek and the king-priest, the royal high-priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that it was Melchizedek who's the finite representation of the priesthood that would be that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, that Melchizedek was designed to give us a finite picture that would represent the kind of priesthood that Jesus Christ had. That sets us up for the next verse, verse four, which says, Now consider how great this man was. The emphasis, again, on his leadership, on his authority, on his superiority over even someone as great as Abraham. And we'll pick that up next time where we, have, we look at this issue of tithing, giving a tenth of the spoils. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, for the opportunity to be challenged by what the Scripture says about the uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ, and be challenged in terms of our own devotion and dedication to Him. That we have been saved for a reason, we have been bought for a purpose, and that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, and that we need to press on in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.